Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. I'm a composer, conductor, and music educator. On this podcast, I talk with other composers and discover how they began their journey into composition. Join me each week as we explore their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. To learn more about this podcast and access a complete archive of episodes, including the series of shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website at sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough, and welcome to the first episode of Season 7. I started this podcast back in August of 2020, and I've loved watching the growth of the show and the audience. I can't thank you all enough for your support. This show marks interview number 84. The season will culminate on January 16th, 2024, with a special 100th episode that you will not want to miss. So now, on with the show. My guest today is Dr. Z. Randall Stroop. Randall is a composer and conductor, having conducted concerts in 26 countries and published over 200 musical works. He is the artistic director for two international summer music festivals and has directed the Vatican Mass 12 times. Randall holds a Bachelor of Music Education in Voice and Piano, a Master of Music in Vocal Performance, and a Doctor of Musical Arts in Conducting. In the United States, Randall has directed 56 performances at Carnegie Hall and Chicago Orchestra Hall, 48 mm-hmm. all-state choirs, mm-hmm. and numerous other conducting workshops, clinics, and performances at universities and festivals. Randall is also the founder and conductor of the New American Voices, a professional recording and performing ensemble based in Dallas-Fort Worth. Z. Randall Stroop, welcome to Movable Dough. It's great to be here, Steve. Thanks for hosting. So I'd like, I'd like to start most of these interviews by going back as far as we can. So let's start back at the beginning. Where did you grow up? I was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we stayed in that area for about the my first seven or eight years. And then we moved to southeastern New Mexico. We have a we had a ranch down there. And uh, so I grew up uh, for the most part in a, a very rural area. So okay. and did that you have was, horses and things like that? We had horses. <laughs> uh, I was a member of 4-H. Okay. Uh, we did all the things you do when you live on a farm slash ranch. That's awesome. So I, I know that you ended up majoring in voice later. Were you singing all the time as a child as well, walking around the house and singing songs? I don't really recall doing that so <laughs> much. I started with piano, uh, as most people do at, a, at an early age. Most people do uh, in terms of people that go into music. And that was sort of my anchor, if you will. And then uh, my parents would send me in the summer to uh, a music camp, which was in Waxahachie, Texas. It was just a summer uh, music program that, uh, you know, they did the typical, they did music theory and they did chamber music and things like that. And that's really where I, I got my early training was in the summers and, uh, and so on. And I was in high school choir as well. So that, that was obviously an asset. Yeah. Where in Texas is Wachahatchee? I've never even You know, it's a suburb more or less of Dallas. Okay. Yeah. Not too far away from there. Gotcha. So what is something you remember learning from one of your early music teachers that you see yourself still applying today? Oh, wow. There's just, just innumerable really. Uh, I, I think what my piano teacher, my, the first one, which was, you know, sort of from the start when you get going 
was uh, just uh, the, the importance of listening to great performances, listening to mint to people who would be your mentors, either in a direct way, like you work with them personally, or you're sort of people that you look up to and you learn from just studying their their scores or listening to their performances. And, and that's that was really uh, something we did quite a bit. Hmm. We would drive to various cities and listen to pianists and vocalists. And that was really quite an asset. That's great. Is there a particular musical experience from your youth that stands out to you as something particularly memorable? I think probably the things that stand out to me most are uh, the things with my mentors, uh, with Norman Lockwood, who is uh, my main p- composition teacher. And um, he, <laughs> my first lesson with him, well, I had called him up and asked him, and he was already in his mid-70s, and I asked him if I could study with him. And he said, he just sort of hesitated for about 30 seconds. And I, I thought, uh-oh, that's not good. <laughs> uh, and so he finally said, well, I'll see you once. And I thought, okay, well, once is better than none at all. And so uh, my, my lessons, uh, then after the first lesson, he looked at me and said, well, if you want to come next week, then it's okay. And <laughs> That started a really long relationship for about 18 years, actually, off and on studying with Norman. But he and his wife, Vona, would host me in this typical little house. You can just think of it as a little white picket fence around it. And we would have a Sunday afternoon lesson. And after about an hour, we'd get up and walk around outside, pick up weeds and just sort of walk around, talk about nothing related to music. And then come in and Vona, his wife, would make tea for us and then we'd go back in the studio and work for about another hour so this was really quite unique you you can't imagine a composition lesson with such a great uh, composer as norman was uh, and in in that way i felt so privileged yeah i actually wanted to talk about your composition because your college education that i listed in your bio is severely lacking in composition degrees uh however you you have become a quite accomplished composer and I know your composition teachers come from a high pedigree of composition teachers as well. So tell me more about them and where where they came from and uh, well, things no, that they taught you that you still use. Yeah, Norman Lockwood won the Prix de Rome in 1927. That is uh, that's sort of like the the modern day uh, Nobel Prize, if you will, uh, of um, of music. Uh, so they only award one a year. And um, so he really, and he was, uh, he's an orchestra, was an orchestrator and well-known. A lot of the symphonies still play his music. Uh, so he's really quite an iconic figure. And uh, my other composition teacher is uh, Cecil Effinger. And um, he is also an American composer. He uh, taught at the University of Colorado and that's where I met him. And uh, so both of those are pretty iconic figures and their music again is still performed today. So my, my, my composition training is really done outside the academic uh, unit, yeah. if you will. And I really, I like that in my circumstance. Obviously in the academic unit, you study the, the, the academic courses such as uh, you know, orchestration and, and music theory, form and analysis, 
set theory and all those sorts of things. But but having that one on one for several years with accomplished composers, I think is is you know really an asset. And so I really uh, I, I think I've really gained a lot from that. Do you think the way that you were trained uh, helps you approach your compositions differently than uh, another composer might that received academic training? I'm sure that's the case, Steve. Uh, in my case, because I my undergrad, I got a, a, I majored in piano and voice, and I also got a minor in economics and um, and in German at the same time. And so uh, they didn't even have a composition degree per se. And my master's was in voice performance and music history. And again, uh, most academic settings, you don't mix and match too much. <laughs> but I did, uh, but I did supplant that from the composition standpoint with a lot of personal uh, study. And that uh, I, I think so from my standpoint, they, they really taught in me in a style in a way that was not uh, you know you have this assignment due tomorrow or next week it was really a, applicable just to the things that i would like to write and um they didn't try to impose their style on on me but they worked with the style that i had to make it better so um so i guess there that, that's it so from from my standpoint i really didn't have the opportunity to study composition so much in the academic setting so it's all been done outside but i have really extensive study in composition on the outside if you will yeah where did the initial interest in composition come from oh early on i mean we're talking seven eight years old oh, yeah. i have my uh my early works from that period, believe it or not. I'm, I'm sure they're worthless. <laughs> it's, it's the piano piece that lasts 15 seconds, you know, and it's the vocal line, vocal lines that maybe the, what I, I would think at that time, this was my, you know, this was my vocal composition, but in, in essence, it only lasted a, like 10 seconds or something. <laughs> but I had an early, very early interest in, in composition and improvisation and just creating things at the keyboard. And uh, so, and I studied improvisation also. Um, so that that's part of creativity. So it's really kind of a varied background of a, of a lot of things. Yeah. Well, now over the years, you've been a, a guest conductor and clinician at more and more almost countless engagements. So I teach high school choir, and I know that you used to teach high school as well. I did. Uh, so when you're preparing to go to a clinic, like, a, like an all-state honor choir, you know, you're going to be facing 250 high school students. What do you do to, to prepare? Uh, a lot. <laughs> I do. Uh, I treat each one. I never get, I, I hope I never get too good at it. If you can, if I can put it that way, uh, I, I really treat each one as the first one. And so I remark my scores. Um, that's that's really important. And I, I studied score marking with Margaret Hillis, mm -hmm. who was the assistant uh, at the Chicago Symphony. And um, she has this really specific method of marking scores in colors and so on. And and so that's really helps a great deal in the analyzation. And and then uh, I use a lot of metaphors, which I think are extremely effective in communicating, particularly in a uh, kind of a time crunched environment. Because when you're doing an Allstate, I'll do my 49th Allstate this year, 
<clears throat> that you don't have time with that Monday through Friday class to sort of slowly develop concepts and really concrete them in. You really have to get in there and assess what needs to be done and try to approach it very efficiently. So just mainly score study, to be honest, uh, Steve. Um, and then um, I sing through every line, which is really important. Um, and uh, yeah, I just really go through it top to bottom. So I, and I memorize everything, which I think is very important. It really frees you from, uh, well, it frees you from just being a slave to the, to the score from a standpoint of visual. And then you're able to listen more intently. Well, I know using Margaret Hillis's system, you almost have it memorized after you finished marking it, after sure. going through it nine times <laughs> or however many times it takes. And I know my, my own students actually got to experience an Allstate with you back in Tennessee years ago, and they absolutely enjoyed it. Uh, so, so when you do an Allstate, what is the number one thing you hope the students take away from that experience? Love for music. You know, I always say, I even tell them this, that you will forget uh, the conductor's name at some point, not probably too long from now. And I say that you will also probably can't name every work on your Allstate that you did in high school, you know, when you're 30, 30 years old, 35, uh, maybe one or two will come to mind because they were your favorites. But so the program itself will sort of drift and maybe the person will drift as well that was up front, but, but uh, the event, you know, uh, Maya Angelou says people will might forget what you say, may forget what you did, but they'll never forget how you made them feel. And my job there, I think, is to make them fall ever more in love with music. And so that as they approach their own, for those that are going into music, as they approach their own students someday, that they'll pass along that love for music. And if you love music, if you love whatever you're doing, whatever discipline, is that uh, you will be more in, you'll be more aggressive toward it you'll be you'll want it and be more thorough in how you approach that as your discipline as opposed to just being sort of a cursory interest so so i feel at the end of it it's not about me it's really not so much about them it's about the art and the love for it and, and from that you can go in a variety of directions fantastic so I'd love to know more about your ensemble, the New American Voices. When and why did you start this ensemble? Well, it started off, Steve, as a recording ensemble. And so a lot of my, uh, as, I, as a composer, it's really incredibly important that you have a, a, a recording that you can, you can put your signature under, if you will, that that's the definitive recording of that work. And um, there's nothing wrong with having, on YouTube, we have multiple recordings of most of my works, and they're really, many of them are just really top notch. But I usually start off with recording it myself, or at least being in on a recording of my music when I first mm -hmm. publish it. And so they started off as being an ensemble that I would put together, and they come all the way from the furthest to South Carolina, they come from Arizona up in Colorado, obviously Texas, because that's in Fort Worth and uh, Oklahoma and so on. And they get together about twice a year and then we record. And we record um, all day long. We bring a recordist in from Oklahoma City and uh, everything's very professional. 
um, and it ranges from all of, from 18 singers to about 25. And, and we also now are touring. We did a tour last summer, summer of 2022 to the Baltic. So we started oh, in wow. Finland and went rolled around uh, all the way over to um, how far did we go? Almost to Norway, really. And that that uh, was a really wonderful tour. And um, and they love it. And we're taking a tour next summer, starting in northern Italy and going up into Switzerland and then to Bruges and then up to Amsterdam. And that happens in June 2024. Great place for American voices to be. I think so. We don't really do concerts in. Well, we do a few, but that's not our point is to do concerts in the Fort Worth, uh, Dallas area. Uh, there's a lot of wonderful ensembles there. I'm not sure I need to add <laughs> another one there, but I, I, but they're, they're again, they're just really recording and touring is, is their focus. Very cool. So I'd like to know, do you feel like your work as a composer influences the choices you make as a conductor or vice versa? Wow. That's, that's actually a very, uh, a wonderful question. Uh, I, I, it's hard to say it's, there's a, such a mutualness between composition and conducting. I, I can't imagine composing without conducting and I can't imagine conducting without knowing the construction of what I'm looking at. So I think compose, composers have a little, a, a, a slight edge on knowing what the techniques are, the compositional devices used beyond just the obvious. And uh, so, so the composition certainly informs the conducting, and the conducting uh, kind of, if if you will, judges as to whether that works or not. You know, when you're in your in the field, no matter whether it's your music or someone else's, you can see certain devices that uh, are academically sound, but they don't work practically. <laughs> you know, it's a good idea, uh, like a spruce goose. It should work, but you know, it doesn't really. <laughs> And good so, analogy. <laughs> yeah, so you just actually, uh, I think one feeds the other. It's it's hard to separate. Part of it is because I've never separated it. It's just always mm -hmm. been with me. Yeah. So, yeah, great question. All right, I got one more question before we take a quick break. Uh, so you are, without argument, very successful at what you do. So what is something you're not very good at? Hmm. Oh, well, I have to, that's a long list. <laughs> uh, probably from a musical standpoint or from a career in music, I think the thing that I struggle with most is probably marketing. Uh, I think that may not be the, uh, the musical answer you were looking for, but from standpoint of, you know, no matter what we do, whether it's having a resume and, you're applying for new teaching positions or conducting professional conducting positions or whatever you're doing in life um, that you have to market yourself and that takes a lot of time and i'd much rather be doing my craft but you know it's it's just part of it part of it that you have to do to make that work and so i struggle i think i struggle with that a, a great deal. I do spend a lot of time on it, but it is, uh, it's a frustrating part of the business, I think for me. Yeah. It's exhausting. I can tell you that too. Well, you do the same thing with this wonderful podcast. Uh, it's, you know, you can sit in your, I can sit in 
you know, with a sheet around my head and compose for the rest of my life. And, uh, and it might be enjoyable, but I do like to get the music out. And again, Norman Lockwood, he had these it's like pillars around his office of these stacks of manuscripts that went up, you know, four and five, six feet. And when I first had a lesson, I said, don't you, wouldn't you like to publish some of these things? <laughs> and, and of course he did early on in his career, but uh, he says, no, I just like to write. I just love writing. And so he writes every day for three or four hours and they just stack up. And, and so I, I always wondered about that, but again, it was in his case, it was the love of the love of writing was yeah. uh, all he needed. Okay. Well, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll listen to some of Randall's compositions. Welcome back. This is Steve Danielson. I'm talking today with Dr. Z. Randall Stroop. So today, we're going to start with Starry Messenger for TTBB or SSAA Choir. Uh, this has an interesting text written by Galileo Galilei, an advertisement or such, promoting some of his discoveries using his telescope. So was this text given to you as part of a commission, or is this something you came across and decided to use? It was a commission, but my my terms for a commission are that I choose the text. Okay. Once in a while, somebody will suggest one, and I say, well, I'll certainly be open to it because, you know, you're the commissioning party, but I said the likelihood of me using it is pretty minuscule. I like to... <laughs> because I might not relate to what they relate to. And so in this case, I was just enamored. You've already introduced it quite nicely. Uh, Galileo, of course, invented the telescope. And with that came, it wasn't a particularly powerful one. I think it was like 20 times normal, if you will. But uh, so he's able to see uh, stars in the Milky Way even better. And, and he saw the Jupiter's stars, the, and he called these uh, stars the Medician stars. And he put this treatise together, and I was just so enamored by the cover of the treatise where he he talks about he's unfolding these wonderful sights and and displaying this new gaze to everyone who reads this, mm. especially philosophers and astronomers. And so this whole intro about these planets that are circling these uh, the Jupiter with swiftness and uh, in different directions and all of that i was just so enamored by the the rhythmic motion and the colors that you could throw into this is i always think of it as like going down a water slide at about 90 miles an hour while reading a book i mean it's like there's just so much to take in at one time and so i hope that the the end result which you may hear in just a moment will have some of that sense of circularness and spinning and uh, sliding almost vocally and otherwise. Yeah, I definitely felt that while listening. Uh, so what, one other question though, what sort of challenges do you face when you're setting a non-poetic text? So this is very much non-poetic. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the structure is probably the, the only thing that you have to think about. I mean, in a poem, it's already got a built-in structure of some, some sort, mm -hmm. um, even non-rhyming poems. I mean, so it's, so with something like just a treatise uh, cover, if you will, the preface, if you will, then you have to come up with a, a structure that works and makes sense to the listening audience, people that are heavily academic in terms of music and those that are just casual listeners. So, uh, but I usually start with just the melody and you'll hear this first melody that sounds like... Uh, 
So it has that little bit of an intriguing, what is that about? You know, it's a little mystery. Mm. So and from there, it just kind of spins off. And the wonderful uh, ensemble Cantus in this country, um, they recorded it in their professional uh, ensemble, and uh, they just did a great job. All right. Well, we are actually going to listen to Contus's performance here of Starry Messenger.
right, our next piece today, sticking with the star motif, we're going to go to We Beheld Once Again the Stars for SATB Double Chorus, this time with text by Dante from his epic Inferno. So the text is in Italian, and as the sojourner struggled to move from purgatory to the gates of paradise and behold once again the stars. So can you explain some of your thoughts as you were setting this text? Yeah, this this text, of course, Dante, who just had the 400th anniversary, a big deal in Italy. I go to Italy every year and have since, uh, gosh, 2009, I guess. And I do a festival there in Rome. And uh, the, he's just, uh, he's just a, a, a god there, if you will, um, in, in the literary sense. And so this, I, the Divine Comedy is, uh, of course, it's not comedy. That's not what that means right. <laughs> in this use. But it's, it has three parts, and I was enamored by this. The, the first one just basically says, soon it will be night. We need to rise and go on. In other words, it, they, they've been sort of stopped for a bit, and, and this person says, we need to keep going uh, in search of the light. And then the second part is where the, uh, you know, the underworld, the wings of hell's monarch are heard nearby, which hastens, need to hasten the pace. You know, so the music really changes there with that sense of, of uh, drama, if you will, with the monarch of hell uh, wanting to stop the journey uh, to do a paradise. And of course, the third, as you can guess, is they see this small opening with light, and it's the supreme light. And at that moment in time, they see the stars, they beheld the stars, and they walk right they open the door to paradise so this long journey um has uh, has now come to a close and they've they've made it so that whole drama uh, is just i always I'm, i like epic stories and there are not many as epic as this one <laughs> and so I, I really found it to be quite uh, attractive okay and the recording you play might be the philippine uh chamber Madrigal singers, yeah. Madrigal singers, okay. And they're they're do such a great, great job. Okay. Well, let's listen to the Philippine Madrigal Singers perform We Behold Once Again the Stars. Oh, oh, oh. 
All right, our third piece today, Odier, This Day, for SATB Chorus, eight-part brass timpani percussion and organ, or a fully orchestrated version. This is among one of your bestsellers. Now, I understand that what we're going to hear today is a actually a recent revision of this work. So tell us about writing the original piece and then why you felt the need to create this revision. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I approached, well, my initial, uh, the initial one I premiered, I hosted David Wilcox, the great, uh, Sir David Wilcox, the great English conductor uh, who unfortunately passed away about 10 years ago this year. And, and uh, he, I had him over to the United States and I was doing a concert of brass and choral music during uh, Christmas. And um, so I presented it while he was he was uh, he was at the concert and did some conducting. He did the conducting as well. And it's a three movement work, as you said, for eight part brass percussion. And it also has, uh, you know, organ in it and uh, timpani and all that sort of thing. So it's it's really quite fanfarish. The first movement is uh, kind of a sonic fireworks, if you will. And then the second movement is a little bit more reflective. And the third movement is just, uh, just goes. It's just, it's highly rhythmic. And um, I just really endorse, <laughs> I, I don't always endorse everything I write in that sense. I mean, you, to say that you're absolutely successful in everything you write would, would not only be arrogant, it'd just be simply incorrect. <laughs> but this one I really, I really adore. And uh, I think, uh, and I had the last movement, I incorporated uh, Philip Nikolai's Bach et Auf into it, just the chorale. And uh, so between that initial one and this revision, I approached Hal Leonard and asked him if I could uh, write another first movement. So I completely tossed the first movement of the original and I wrote a new first movement, which I felt was more singable and uh, more accessible to, to choirs. Accessible can sometimes have a negative connotation, meaning that it's simple or simpler. I don't think that's the case here. It just approaches um, the music in a, in a much different way. Mm -hmm. uh, and is, you know, you have to, you have to have melody. Um, that's really, that's the first thing that people look for is, is can I whistle it? Is it something that's intriguing? Does it, does it, uh, does it match the text? All of those things. And I think that's why I wrote the first movement. I, I just think that I achieved greater success on this pass. And then the last, the last movement I, I reconstructed about 50, 60%. So uh, you would recognize the old one, I suppose, but you wouldn't, but you would, you would uh, certainly see that it's vastly changed. Okay. I, I know you said this was written for Christmas, but you contend that this could be performed any time of the year. So what makes it so universal that it's not strictly Christmas? I think the text, uh, I think it's the text. I mean, the, the first movement talks about ring out you crystal spheres, bless our human ears and let your silver chime move in melodious time. So it really has uh, from a strictly uh, from the, the text itself that really has no connotation toward Advent whatsoever. And the, the second movement though is today Christ is born, 
it's in Latin, but that's the translation in English. And so, I mean, that's that's pretty directly at <laughs> <laughs> And the third movement is is an alleluia for the most part. And wake, awake, the night is flying, and the, the watchers on the heights are crying, awake, Jerusalem, arise. So once again, it's not as directly Advent. So, and I've, I've heard this done at several all states uh-huh. and um, so on. I've not done it myself at an all state, I don't believe, but, but, because uh, it's difficult sometimes to get eight brass and the percussion and right. the organ and all that together, as you, as you can imagine. All right. Well, we are going to listen to ODA here performed by the New American Voices.
All right, we've got one more piece today. Tarantella, Jubilate Año for TTB, B, and String Quartet, or piano. Uh, also available for SATB, I should say. Uh, Jubilate Año is, of course, Latin for Rejoice in the Lamb, which was an epic poem by 18th century English composer Christopher Smart, confined to an asylum by his father for his overt religious zeal. Uh, one of the best-known settings of this poem is by English composer Benjamin Britten. However, you chose a very different approach, using half Latin, half English, and setting it as a tarantella, this quick angular-type dance. So what were you wanting to communicate with this piece? Uh, Christopher Smart, uh, which is the person that you that you noted earlier, or Kit Smart, um, he, he was... Uh, he was almost borderline insane, but I, I just think he was just so brilliant that the the people around him didn't really didn't really uh, sort that out. I think they just thought he was absurd. And like I said, borderline insane. He was obsessed with so many things. Um, one was the alphabet, frankly, he just he liked doing like speak saying words in order of the alphabet. And so I, I when I set uh, his text, um, I added to it uh, quite a bit. Okay. And I, I put, uh, I went through the entire alphabet with with Latin words in rapid fire. So it sounds like a patter um, when you when it goes through, and because uh, his preoccupation with that. And then I combined it with a medieval spider dance. Um, the, the spider dance was uh, out in the wheels, uh, on the fields, I should say, of wheat, where they had tarantulas, uh, they would have, uh, they would do a dance to sort of fend off the spiders as they had harvest. And so I combined that with this Christopher Smart text. And uh, yeah, it just came, uh, I, I think it's really been very successful. And I, as you just said a while ago, I just put out a, an SATB version of it uh, just a few months ago. And um, so it's highly rhythmic. There's probably 50 meter changes in this work. And uh, a lot of it almost sounds nonsensical, I think, in many ways. And then suddenly it breaks into lucidity with rejoice in God, all you tongues give the glory to the Lord, and then it just flies off in a different direction. Even at the beginning, I have the choir during the introduction, take a step to take a step to the right, just the whole choir at one time just simply shifts during the introduction, which the audience probably just goes, what are they doing right now? And they never go back. <laughs> I, I put uh, the, the accompaniment is piano, of course, or it can be string quartet. And the, and the cellist, for instance, is slapping um, the instrument and making all kinds of sounds. And uh, so the, the piece is filled with sort of that almost a musical absurdity, but within the concept uh, context of, you know, tonality and I hope good taste as well. But I had fun writing this, much like the Galileo text, it's, it's way off the beaten path. And uh, I don't I don't think that so I try to write things that are quite unique unto themselves and find texts that are not in the, you know, the top, quote unquote, 100, uh, like setting another Gloria. I, I think we probably have plenty of them at this point or, or another Kyrie and things like that. So I'm trying to find texts that are unique and stimulate the audience's 
interests. And this one, as you said, as the ODA and this one's got some macaronic text, which is the mixing of two or more languages. I think you'd find that 25 or 30 of my works do that because I like to sort of translate the Latin as we go into English. Yeah. So the audience kind of has a translation right there as they, as they listen to it, instead of having to read a program to find out what is this about? Yeah, just thinking back to what I did with my high school students, I remember your conversion of Saul does that same thing with yes, the Latin does. and English, yeah. I find right. it really attractive. Yeah, it's a lot of fun going back and forth. Uh, we are going to listen to Tarantella, Jubilate Año, here performed by the Wellington College Chorale from Wellington College, New Zealand. <laughs> Right. Well, Randall, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? 
I am doing, uh, I just finished a work for the St. Augustine Community Choir for their big 50th anniversary next in May 24. Um, I'm doing a commission for an, a, a semi-professional ensemble here in Albuquerque right now. And um, for a church in Fort Worth and um, just a lot of projects that I have going on just for me. I'm writing a large, maybe a 30 minute work with full orchestra and choir. Uh, it's about eight movements long. Um, so, so I keep pretty busy yeah. right now. Yeah. But, and this has been a really wonderful year for me. 2023 has been a really uh, great year compositionally. It's my most productive year I've had in my career. And so for, for some reason, but, uh, so I, I won't, I won't ask why I'll just take it. <laughs> there you go. Well, we'll look forward to the things coming out on the press. So Great. if my, if my listeners want to learn more about you, this is your marketing opportunity. Where are you located online? Yeah. www.www.zrstroope.com. So www.zrstroope.com. All right. And are you on social media at all as well? I have a, I have 95 YouTubes that I have personally recorded and promoted. And uh, so that, that's there. I'm on Spotify as well if they want to live stream some things. Um, so I'm, I'm and, on, you know, we do the Facebook and things like that, too. So it's not, I said earlier, marketing really kind of frustrates me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's a necessary evil. And uh, so I'm out there pretty heavily. Right. Sounds great. Well, hey, listeners out there here at the beginning of season seven, I would ask that you take time today to make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. The show is available to listen to on just about any platform you prefer. I personally use Google Podcasts, but we're also on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, CastBox, Pocket Casts, and more. If you can't find the show on your favorite podcast provider, let me know and I can probably get it there. Just make sure you subscribe and like the show. The more likes, the more the algorithms will like our show and get it in front of other people. Do it now because you don't want to miss any more of the rest of this season. Well, Randall, I have been a fan of your music for years and I have loved talking to you today. Thank you for joining me for this first episode in the new season of Movable Dough. It's been my honor, Steve. Thank you again. My guest today was composer Dr. Z. Randall Stroop. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. Sorry,